The scripture passage we will read is from 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4 down to verse 10. Let us give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the Spirit bless our hearts with a receptive nature to his word this evening as we consider it together. Well, last week together we heard about the great blessing of adoption. And John told us that God the Father so loved us We who are sinners, that he has adopted us into the very family of God through Jesus Christ. And so for the high price of Jesus' bloody death, we are now legally called children of God. And John says, so you are, truly you are children of God. That declaration, however, leaves us with this question. Is it possible to find out who are the true children of God? That is the question that John answers in this passage before us. And his conclusion, if you noticed, is found in verse 10, where there he answers in the affirmative saying, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now that word for evident in the original Greek means readily known, visible, Clear, plainly to be seen, open and plain, evident. In other words, it's not obscure, ambiguous, or unclear. It is evident. And so, if you pay close attention to this passage, you can learn how to distinguish between those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. But don't let this text here simply be a tool that you use to discern other people. Finding tares among the weeds or separating the goats from the sheep. John's aim here is twofold for us. First, he wants us to be comforted as Christians who are clearly children of God by evaluating our lives and our hearts. And he wants to challenge those who claim to be Christians, but clearly or evidently are not of God. So he wants to comfort, but he also wants to challenge. Because according to this passage, there are only two stocks of people in this world. There are those who are the children of God, and there are those who are the children of the devil. And as the title of the sermon tonight 
uh, is before you. The question of this passage is, who is your daddy? Who is your father? God or the devil? To whom do you belong? So tonight, whether this passage comforts you or convicts you, either way, I pray that the Spirit draws you closer to Jesus Christ, that you might find hope and new life in him, because that's what John wants. Three points tonight. First, we'll consider the children of the devil. Secondly, the Son of God. And thirdly, the children of God. And for each of those three points, we'll consider its root, its branch, and its fruit. Or in other words, we could say origin, heart, and evidence. Because what did Jesus say? Our Lord Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. For the tree is known by its fruit. So our first point, the children of the devil. According to John here in this passage, from what root do the children of the devil come? In other words, what is their paternity? Who is their father? Well, the answer is found in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now, who is this devil that John is speaking of? By the devil, John refers to that arch nemesis of God, this enemy who is a slanderous accuser. And he was originally created by God as a beautiful and powerful spiritual being, an arch angel. But sometime before the fall of mankind, that good being mysteriously let an evil grow in his heart. And he coveted God's throne. He sought to overtake the creator. He tried to steal God's place as the high king over all things. And as a just punishment, the Lord God banished him, the evil one, from heaven to now dwell on earth. And our Lord Jesus says that he was there and he witnessed that happen in Luke 10, 28, where he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so ever since that fall, this terrible adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone, as Peter says. That is the devil of whom John speaks when he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. But in what sense is the devil the root or the father of all those who practice sinning? Well, John tells us in the next line of verse 8, he says, For the devil has been sinning from when? The beginning. From the beginning, it's a flashback or a hyperlink to Genesis 3, the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the story. When the devil first appeared in the Garden of Eden, and the devil there, he slithered into the garden under the guise of a snake. And with clever speech, he tricked the woman to join his rebellion against the creator God. And then without question or protest, the man quickly joined the creature's rebellion against the creator God. And there, by the instigation of the devil, Adam willfully raised that forbidden fruit to his mouth, sunk his teeth into it, and swallowed the sweet taste of poisonous sin that led to death. So even though it was Adam's own willful choice, we can point back to that beginning. 
to the devil's deception and say that the devil's deception, his lies at the root of humanity's fall into sin and death. The devil was the first dealer in sin, a shifty salesman or the original recruiter for the creature's rebellion against God. The devil's influence is not just limited to that beginning, because in verse 8, John tells us that he has been sinning from the beginning, has been. That means he is still sinning today, just as he did in the beginning. In other words, he didn't just knock up humanity with sin. The devil stuck around to raise fallen humanity as his children in the ways of sin. He is like those terrorists that exist in some countries that kidnap little children and then train them to become lethal soldiers. In other words, humanity is still under the influence and the sway of the devil. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says that those who walk in sin are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work now in the sons of disobedience. And so the devil is that prince of the power of the air whose spirit is at work in humanity in order to lead them in constant, persistent rebellion against their creator, God. What are the devil's works? He works in deception, lies, trickery, and temptation. Wherever such work is found in the world, therein lies the ongoing work of the evil one, the devil with respect to his instigation and influence to sin, we can affirm that the devil is a kind of father to those who make a practice of sinning. And so the devil lies at the root of humanity's sinful state. Now, what is the branch or the disposition of the heart of the children of the devil? Look at verse 4. John says, sin is lawlessness. John here reveals the true nature of sin. Sins are not random, unrelated acts of disobedience. No, sin originates from a heart that hates God's moral law. The lawless heart we were all born with wants what it wants and not what God wants. Pastor Joel Beakey says it this way, Sin is man's refusal to submit his mind and heart and will to the authority of God. He does not want anyone other than himself to be Lord of his life. This is the disposition, that that heart disposition of the sinful nature that we have all inherited from our first father, Adam. In theology, we call this original sin. We're all born with it. Men, women, and children sin. Why? Because they were born with lawless hearts. When a person does not accept and delight in God's law as the true standard of what is right and wrong, they show themselves to be a child of the devil. How can you tell if this disposition is in someone's heart? Well, again, John is showing us by examining the fruit of their life. What is the fruit of the children of the devil? John says that they make a practice of sinning, and they keep on sinning. Now, With these statements here in this passage, John cannot mean that Christians never sin because that would contradict what he already said in chapter 1, 
verse 8. He said there, if we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so we must admit that we have sin if the truth is in us. What then does John mean here? Well, he's saying this, that the children of the devil manifest their lawless hearts by living a lifestyle of unapologetic sinning, unrepentant sinning. Children of the devil may claim to be good and upright, but they refuse to confess their sins and they do not want to turn away from them because they are lawless. They would rather live like the devil, choosing for themselves what is right and wrong in order to get whatever they want. And commentator Karen Job says this, No assurance of eternal life is possible for anyone who claims to be a child of God, but wants to live like the devil. Now, if this is the state that we are all born into, all of us, what hope is there for any of us? Well, if it weren't for the grace of God, there would be no hope. But John tells us here in this passage that Jesus Christ came. He entered into this world in order to fix our miserable state and redeem us. And so our second point, we'll consider the Son of God. Now, what is the root of Jesus? In other words, who is Jesus's father? From where does he come? We'll look at verse 8 in the passage. John refers to Jesus as the Son of God. That is, he is the one who has come from heaven, from God. In chapter 8 of John's gospel, in verses 42 to 43, we hear Jesus say this in dialogue with the religious leaders of his day. He says this, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And did you hear the similar themes in that passage from chapter 8 there in the Gospel of John? The theme of the Son of God who came from heaven. And also the theme of how to distinguish between those who are the children of the devil and those who are the children of God. So clearly this teaching of Jesus is in the background of our passage here in 1 John chapter 3. And Jesus is the one who has come from God the Father, sent by him. Now, why is it significant that Jesus is from God the Father? Well, even though he was born of a woman, the young virgin Mary, Jesus was conceived not by the will of man, but rather conceived by the Holy Spirit in a state of holy purity. His root is in God himself. And this means that Jesus' heart is pure and without sin. And look at verse 5. John tells us that in Jesus there is no sin. Unlike our lawless hearts, Jesus' heart is pure, untainted by the corruption of sin. And that's what he said back in verse 3, that he is pure. And when we think of his earthly ministry, Jesus' heart was always inclined, was it not, towards 
goodness, beauty, and truth. His thoughts and desires were entirely pure and motivated by love. And not only that, Jesus loved all things perfectly as they should be loved. That is, he loved God the Father first and foremost, and he loved all other things in their proper order. He never turned to the right or to the left away from God's law. He always walked in the light as his Father is light. And as in God, so too in Jesus, in him there is no darkness at all. Sin cannot dwell in Jesus, just as you cannot find darkness in light. Try and find darkness in light. You can't find it. Try and find sin in Jesus. You cannot find it. So in contrast to our lawless hearts, John tells us in verse 7 that Jesus is righteous. He is righteous. And how do we know that Jesus is indeed pure and righteous? By examining the fruit of his life. John shows us by explaining two reasons why Jesus came to earth. He says in verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Now this means that the Son of God came to deal with the penalty of our sins. How? By dying in our place on the cross. Dying there in the place, suffering the wrath of God for his chosen ones. As Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. That lawless heart, right? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we see that Jesus came to take away the penalty that we deserve for our sins by taking it into his own body on the tree. But even more than that, he came to take away sins themselves. Not just the legal consequence of guilt. John also means that he came to take away the power of sin. The Son of God didn't come only to forgive those who are slaves to sin. He came also to forgive and to free those who are slaves to sin. And Jesus says so in John 8, that same passage we read earlier, where he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But that's not all. The second reason for Jesus' coming is found in verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared, John says, was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, Jesus came to uproot all sin in this world. And that's why he came to deal with the root problem there, the devil. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2:15 that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, that God disarm the rulers and authorities, referring to those spiritual powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him there on the cross. And so how is it that Jesus disarmed the devil? He disarmed him of his greatest weapon, our guilty record that stood against us with its legal demands. The Son of God canceled the debt that we had with God and died There for his own on the cross and in sacrificial love, he triumphed over the devil with justice. Because of Jesus's victory, the devil is no longer the slave master of those who believe in Jesus. True Christians have been liberated from the creature rebellion against God. They're no longer part of that. They're now part of the redeemed of the Lord, a different group of people. 
And John intends to show us that Jesus' righteous living, the reasons for which he came, is proof that he is the righteous Son of God. And this is good news for us. Why? Because children who were born of the devil, that is, all of us, we were born of the devil when we were born into this world, naturally, all of us can now be born again as children of God. If you only receive Jesus with a believing heart, he will set you free from both the penalty and the power of sin. As John says in verse 10, it is evident who are the children of God. And so we lastly, in our third point, after seeing the children of the devil and the son of God, we consider the children of God. And what is the root of God's children? We'll look at verse 9. There, John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. Children of God come from God's own seed and they abide in Jesus. What John is saying is that God is now our father. But what seed is John referring to? Well, it's likely here that he's referring to the new nature of that the Spirit works into the believer's heart through the preaching of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not only that Jesus came to deal with our legal state, our debt that we had with God, declaring sinners forgiven and righteous, but more than that, that he came to also change our nature, transforming sinful hearts into righteous hearts, little by little, until we arrive in glory. But not all who claim to be children of God have truly been born of God. We know that there are goats among the sheep and tares among the wheat. Nevertheless, all those who have been truly born of God by his spirit have this new nature. They have God's seed within them. Therefore, John says in verse 9, with this seed he cannot The person, the Christian, cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And again, let me clarify here that John doesn't mean that a born-again Christian will never sin again in their life, but that sin is no longer the bent of their life. Born-again Christians are no longer totally depraved, no longer totally depraved, because God has planted within them what the Apostle Paul calls newness of life through the power of Jesus's resurrection, which comes with new desires, new affections, and especially the will and desire to love God and to obey his law. Born-again Christians have, in a sense, God's DNA in them, and so they bear the family resemblance of doing that which is right, loving God and loving their neighbors as themselves. That means that sinning is no longer compatible with the new nature that a Christian, a born-again Christian, has. It's no longer compatible. To illustrate this, the other day I tried to replace a light bulb outside. I don't exactly know what happened because I'm not an electrician. Maybe some of you can help me later, tell me what happened. I was able to fit in the light bulb into the socket, and the light even turned on, right? But then it started to overheat very quickly, and it began to smoke and spark. And what did I do? Well, I quickly took it out as quickly as I could before it caught on fire, but it was quite scary, right? And if you use a high 
wattage light bulb higher than what is intended, it can be a fire hazard. That's what I looked up and found out. What we find is that incompatibility is dangerous and it causes a negative reaction. That is what sin is like for born-again Christians. It might get twisted and lodged into the heart of a Christian for a moment or for a season, but it cannot stay there inside the Christian without causing sparks and kind of catching fire because sin is a dangerous intruder and is not compatible with the new nature that Christ has given us by the Spirit. Why? Well, the new nature of Christians is not compatible with sinning. God's seed reacts strongly to sin. God's seed in Christians always responds with remorse for sin. In time, the Christian's heart, the born-again Christian's heart, will burn with sadness for disobeying God's law. And by the Spirit of God, the born-again Christian will want to see their sin and get rid of it. Just like I wanted to take out that light bulb and get rid of it before it caused a fire. And how will the Christian do that? By confessing their sin, by repenting and turning again to Christ by faith. In other words, John is saying that it is impossible for born-again Christians to cherish and coddle sin. God's seed in them won't allow it. God's seed will drive out the sinning. While sin can enter a Christian's heart for a time, Another illustration, sin cannot pitch its tent and make its dwelling inside the Christian's heart and life. Sin is an unwelcome guest in the Christian's heart that the Spirit in due time will evict. How then can you tell who is a child of the devil and who is a child of God? Well, again, we come to John's conclusion in verse 10. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is saying that the fruit of one's life shows us that if someone is lawless and continues in sin, doing whatever they want without any remorse or sadness over their sin, then they prove to be the children of the devil. But if someone submits to God's law, and seeks to love other Christians, they prove themselves to be the children of God. And this is exactly what we confess in the Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 29. I'll read a portion of it. Just so you see that this is well within Reformed theology and what we confess and hold to. It says there, As for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith, And by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness, once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, they love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or the left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering death and obedience of the Lord Jesus in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. And so at the close, let me ask you this. Who is your father? God or the devil? Does the fruit of your lifestyle confirm or betray 
the family that you claim to be a part of? Ask yourself that question. Do you go on sinning deliberately with comfort and ease, without remorse or sadness? If so, then you show yourself to be of the devil. Be warned. When Jesus returns, he will squash the creature's rebellion led by the devil. And tonight, before it is too late, surrender yourself to the God of mercy. Turn yourself over to the King of kings, and Jesus will forgive you all your sin and free you from slavery to it. If, however, you have a heartfelt desire to be like Jesus, pure, sinless, and righteous, though your weakness is still there and remains, then rejoice and be glad that desire in your heart is evidence that you belong to God. Thanks be to him. And lastly, as we close here, it's possible that your conscience right now is greatly troubled by this passage because of some unconfessed and unrepentant sin in your life. If that is the case for you, what should you do about it? Repent of that sin too. Confess your sin to God. Ask for his forgiveness and trust in Jesus. If you do, you will so prove to be one of his disciples. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this passage penned by the Apostle John and inspired by the Holy Spirit, which was written and preserved for us throughout the ages for our edification to bring us both comfort and conviction. Lord, we ask the seed of your word now in our hearts that you would indeed give the increase, that you would cause us to respond with repentance and faith, that we would turn away from our sins and trust in Christ. Lord, we ask that uh, you would bring us to that place of surrender before your grace and mercy tonight. And that you would comfort us with the promises as well that Jesus came to do away with all our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. And if we believe in him, that we too are found righteous by the merits of Christ alone. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.